0: We're going to jump back into the book of Genesis in chapter 22. We're going to go clear through chapter 24 this morning. The whole theme of the Bible, if you will, is for the glory of God. The whole theme of the Bible, and more particularly these particular chapters this morning. The theme is there is an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-righteous, holy, holy, God, who is at work in and through his people for his good purpose. Do you believe that? Take a moment right now and look into your own life. Whatever is going on in your own life, as chaotic as it may be, as out of control as it may seem, as as perturbable as it may be, as confusing as... As unreasonable as it may seem to you, do you believe that God is at work in you for his good purpose? If we don't have that hope, we have nothing. This is the wonder of being a Christian. This is the mystery of our faith, that God is at work. And we embrace that by faith. Lord, I don't understand it. I don't understand what's going on, why it's going on. It doesn't make sense to me. But I trust you, and I know you know what you're doing. And I'm going to wait upon you. I'm going to walk as you've called me to walk, as Difficult as it may be, as painful as it may be, I am going to honor you to the best of my ability. And I'm going to trust you that somehow you're going to work it all out for your glory. That's the message. Now, you know I must expand on that. (laughs) If you go back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, you recall the Apostle Paul urges us to work out our salvation. We have a part to play, and God has given us a new life. He's given us salvation. He's given us a new path to walk on. He says, now, in effect, walk this way. Every day, now work out who you should be. But do it in fear and trembling because I'm working in you. I'm working in you so that you can will and do what I want you to do. My pleasure. And we'll see this effect in these passages this morning. Chapter 22 of Genesis, as we studied Abraham, who remembers what happened in chapter 2? This was the, if I can use this phrase, this is the, the great climax of Abraham's life, the climax of his faith, the, the incredible crisis of his faith. What happened in chapter 22? Anybody remember? I know it was a while back. That's right. He was, he, he, God called him to offer his son, his most precious possession. The thing was most dear to him. God didn't offer, ask Abraham to offer his life on the altar. He says, I want you to offer the life of your one and only son, whom you love. Now we know, of course, that Isaac will become a type of who? He'll become representative of who for us? Jesus Christ. We'll see that this morning. But chapter 22, Abraham reached if you will, this climax of his faith. God had called him from Ur the Chaldees. We've walked with Abraham, haven't we? We've watched him. But we've watched him, as we've studied, watched him grow. But we've watched God grow him. And how did God grow him? Through trials, through difficulties, through challenges. And Abraham learned to walk by faith. Until he reached this point, where God said, I want you to offer your son, your only son, whom you love to me. Incredible test of faith. And then God, as it were, raised Isaac back from the dead, the writer to the Hebrews says, restored him to Abraham. And with that, now, we're going to watch Abraham now begin to recede visibility. He's going to pass off the scene in chapter 25. He's going to die. He's received Isaac back. He's passed this great test of faith, Challenge to all of us. We're going to see in the latter verses of chapter 22, real quickly, there's a short little genealogy there. We have a catching up of how things were going back in Abraham's homeland up in Mesopotamia. And the purpose of this little short genealogy was to introduce into the flow of this story here the source of the future bride for Isaac. Rebekah is mentioned there. So Abraham knows now how his family... Remember, he left Mesopotamia nearly 60 years earlier, never to go back. We have no record in the account whatsoever that any of his relatives came to see him. He ever went back. He received any word about them. Where he is now, in the, in the area of uh, Canaan and up in Mesopotamia, there's about 500 miles distance. And he receives word about his family. And that's the first mention of Rebekah. In the next chapter, chapter 23, uh, Sarah will die and be buried. Sarah, his lifelong partner. You can imagine the hole that this will leave in his life. And then in chapter 24, as we'll look this morning, Abraham proceeds now to ensure the fact that the promises of God will be fulfilled through Isaac, and he seeks a bride for his son. It's one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible of how God shows care and provision and how Abraham anticipates a godly father seeking a godly wife for his one and only son and for the future generations that will ensure the promises. And then finally in chapter 25, Abraham's own death. We'll explore that next time. So look with me at chapter 23 real quickly. Sarah dies, we're told at 127 years old. She is, by the way, the only woman in all of Scripture whose age is recorded at her death. No other woman in all of Scripture do we have that information about. I think that is a testimony to Sarah. Indeed, Peter in the New Testament lifts her up as a model, as an example to all women that they should follow Sarah's example. And so Sarah, we see, dies. Dies at at 127 years old. Her death is the occasion, and this is very interesting. Watch how God dovetails things. Her death is the occasion by which Abraham first will come into legal possession of a parcel of land in Canaan. This is important. God had said, you will inherit the land. This is, in effect, kind of like the down payment the first foothold of the land of Canaan that his descendants would inherit. And although this parcel of land is offered to Abraham without cost, he will not accept it. If you recall back in Genesis chapter 14, after Abraham had uh, accomplished a great victory over all those kings in rescuing his nephew Lot, do you recall that? And the king of Sodom wanted to give to him all the spoils of the victory, Abraham said, no, I don't want them at all. He said, I'm not going to put myself in a place where anybody can say, I made Abram rich. Unless God gives it to me, unless God provides it to me, I'm not going to accept a gift from uh, the ungodly. And so we see this. Let's just read real quickly. Sarah lived to be 100 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is, in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. If you go back up into verse 19 of chapter 22, you see that Abram was up in Beersheba. She's down in Hebron. She dies. He goes to mourn for her. Then Abram rose from beside his dead wife, spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Send me some, uh, sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. So he was, he was recognized. He was acknowledged as being an honorable man. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people. He doesn't exhibit an attitude of superiority, nor does he grovel. Inappropriate for people of faith. He shows appropriate respect. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is in the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of all my people. Bury your dead. How magnanimous. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, he said to Ephron in their hearing, Listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Well, listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Well, since you mentioned it, this is what I want for the property. (laughs) Now, according to most of the expositors, they felt that this was an exorbitant price that he was asking. Expecting Abraham to negotiate, which he does not do. His wife to him and the memory of his wife is far too great for him to niggle over the price, for him to negotiate over the price of her burial place. He wants to honor her in every way he can. Sarah was a credible woman. If you recall back in the beginning, when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, his companion of how many years, we don't know for sure how long they were married before they left. But she would go with him from Ur of the Chaldeans, from that rich, rich civilization that she knew, And she would go with him on this long adventure of the Spirit. Here's a woman who, with her husband, his partner for life, would live in tents in the land of Canaan, not having a place of their own. The first place they own is her burial place. Isn't that interesting? Here's a woman who with her husband lived through all those years of childlessness, praying, hoping, will this be the year, will this be the year? 25 years of childlessness. Here's a woman who with her husband, her partner, shared the joy finally of Isaac's birth. She was beautiful even in her 90s. Beautiful to look at. And although she had her faults, she was a woman of great character and great distinction. And now she was dead. Abraham mourned and he wept. You can imagine the devastation. If you've been married any length of time at all and you've had a life partner... And being a pastor for all these years, having to to be with people who have lost a life partner, it can be absolutely devastating. It leaves a terrific hole in your life. Terrific hole. I thought of my wife and, and all the years we've been married and all that we've gone through and how she has steadfastly stood beside me and been my partner, my companion throughout life. What would I do if I ever lost her? I can't even begin to imagine. I thank God for her every day. And I pray God protect her selfishly. (laughs) (laughs) He mourns for her, but notice his mourning, his grief, his sorrow doesn't paralyze him. He still must address the necessities of life, the responsibilities of life. Sometimes... Our grief does paralyze us. Sometimes it seems like we can't move on. But nonetheless, Abraham does, and he goes to prepare a place to bury her. He will not accept it as a gift. He must purchase it. And as it is, it turns out to be a down payment. Now this place where he buries her will not only be her site of burial, but Abraham himself will be buried there. Isaac and Rebecca will be buried there. And Jacob and Leah will also be buried there. So the patriarchs will be buried in the land that God had promised them, and this little parcel of land becomes, in effect, the down payment on the great promise of God that they would inherit the whole land one day. Now look at chapter 24. Sarah has died. We're told that Abraham is old and well advanced in years. He's 137 years old. Would you say that's old and advanced in years? He's still going to live a considerable length of time more. He doesn't die until he's 175. And on top of that, he gets married again and has more kids. That would make Isaac 37. It's about three years now between Sarah's death and when Abraham is going to send his servant for a bride for Isaac, his son. So it's about about three years now, sufficient time for mourning. The thing that is of deepest, deepest importance to Abraham is to ensure that his son be married. In the next chapter, we'll read that finally, when he's married, he's 40 years old. You think that's an appropriate time to be married? Yeah, I think so. 40 So he's going to see, Abraham is going to see Isaac married. This is absolutely critical if indeed God's promises are to continue to be fulfilled through their their offspring. The overarching, remember, the overarching purpose is always God's promise. God's purpose is directing and guiding their life. He's not going to get a wife for Isaac just to get a wife for Isaac, there's a greater purpose. You and I, in our lives, there's always that greater purpose of God's will. What is he doing in me, and what does he want to do through me? Those are guiding principles for our lives as believers. We don't just live our life just to live our life for our sake and for what we want. Although sometimes we find ourselves falling into that mode. We've got to rise up out of that and say, but wait what is God's purpose here? What's God doing here? What's he called me to? and keep that in the forefront of our thinking. Now Abraham is going to call his servant to swear an oath to him, a very solemn oath, and this oath is to go to his father's country. Now again, that's back up to northwest Mesopotamia, which is about 500 miles away. This is a long, arduous trip to find a wife. He's not to get a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites. He's to get a wife who would be coming from people who would be believers. Abraham's family are believers. And he's not to take Isaac with him, because you'll see as we look at the account real quickly that the servant says, well, what if, should I I take him with me? And he says, no, don't take him with you up there. Isaac is to remain in Canaan. Why? Because if he goes up there, he may not come back. When Abraham left, he didn't go back to Mesopotamia. He didn't go back to Ur. And so it's important that Isaac remain in the land because that is going to be his possession and the possession of his descendants. So Sarah, or, uh, uh, Abraham was now old, well advanced in years. The Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to his chief servant in the household, one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son among the daughters of the Canaanites, whom I am living. Don't just, not going to get a, a wife just from anybody. That's why we've been introduced already to his family at the end of chapter 22. He says, But go to my country, to my own relatives, and get a wife. For my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. Abraham was absolutely confident in the word of God, absolutely confident in the promise of God. He could tell his servant, you go, God's angel is going to go before you, and this thing is going to happen. You and I, when we know the word of God and the promises of God, we know that we can speak to people with confidence and say, look, if you will go this way, if you will do this thing, God will honor you. He will take care of you. He will provide. You can trust him. Are there uncertainties in life? All manner of them. And the servant faces these uncertainties. But he's watched Abraham. He's been with Abraham. We don't know that this might be Eliezer from years ago. And he's learned to trust Abraham because Abraham walks with God. Verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left uh, taking with him all kinds of good things for his master, he set out for Aram Neharam and made his way to the town of Nahor. There in that one sentence we have him traversing 500 miles. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. So as was the custom... The women would go in the evening to draw water from the well. Now, the well was not what you and I would imagine as a well. You know, you you pull the rope or you just dip the the bucket in or whatever. You had to walk down. It was dug deeply, and you had to walk down into a, a depressed area, draw the water, and come up out of it, because later in the text says she went down into the well area. How many have read this account before? Genesis 24. Isn't this a beautiful account? how God directs. The servant knows he's to go to Abraham's family, to go up to to where he came from originally, his country. Abraham assured him that God will provide a a bride. He doesn't know who this girl is going to be. He doesn't have a name. And yet he goes by faith. He walks by faith into, in effect... The unknown. What's the first thing he does when he gets there? Look at verse 12. What's the first thing he does? He prays. He prays. O Lord God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to the girl, to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, notice this, and I'll water your camels too. Now he's got how many camels with him? Ten. How far have they traversed? 500 miles. Do you think those camels are thirsty? Can you imagine watering ten thirsty camels? Is he asking too much of God? <laughs> God, I don't know who this gal is going to be, but, but help me identify her, because I'm going to ask the first one who comes down to give me a drink of water, and when she gives me a drink of water, you make her say, you put it in her heart to say, oh, and I'll water your camels too. Can you believe that? <laughs> this is great. Now look at what God does. Before he had finished praying. Don't you love that? Before he had finished praying. Isaiah sixty-five twenty-four says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are still praying, I will hear. Isn't that wonderful? Before he even stopped praying, Rebecca shows up. The first girl is there. Verse 16, the girl was very beautiful. That helps. <laughs> I mean, you want to you marry a woman of noble character, right? An industrious woman, a woman of healthy and strong and all those kinds of things. But it helps that she would be attractive. Nice to look at. She's a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, came up again. The servant hurried to meet her. Can you imagine his anticipation? And he said, please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar uh, to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, now notice this. I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. That's a lot of water. How many trips she had to make down the, the steps into that well to draw up that water? She putting herself out? Can you imagine what he's thinking? Whoa, yay, God! <laughs> First one. She not only gives me a drink, but God, she's going to water my camels until they're finished drinking. This is a good, good woman. <laughs> so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Verse 21, now he's still not sure. But you can imagine, he's He's hoping. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. I mean, so far it looks good, doesn't it? But he's not going to jump to a conclusion too quickly. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a Becca and two gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Is she hospitable? She answered, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son, of, uh, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And remember, Nahor was Abraham's brother. So now he learns that she is from Abraham's family. The very thing that Abraham had told him to do. We have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. And then the man Bowed low and worship the Lord. Would you? Praise God! He worshiped. Saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives, right where I needed to go. God has led me right to the right person. Isn't that wonderful? The Bible talks about the the steps of the righteous are ordered by God. I couldn't think of a a better illustration for Proverbs 3.6. And Proverbs 3.6 says what? If you acknowledge him in all of your ways, he will what? Make your path straight. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother named Laban. Here's the first place we meet Uncle Laban. And we're going to meet Uncle Laban again in chapter 29. Uncle Laban is quite a character. How many know about Uncle Laban? Yeah. We get some insight into his character in this passage, by the way. He hurried out to the man at the spring as soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on her sister's arms. He's more interested in material things than he is in the spiritual. He had heard Rebecca tell what the man had said to her. He went out to the man, found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Had he prepared anything? No. This guy's slick, boy. And Jacob is going to find out, isn't he? Man, oh man. Wait till we get to chapter 29. So the man went into the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I've told you what I have to say. It's not about me. My mission is so urgent. Before we eat anything, before I do anything else, I've got to tell you why I'm here. And from right there, from verse 34 down to verse 49, he recounts the entire mission. All this transpired up to this point. Verse 50, when Laban and Bethuel heard all that he had to say, they answered, this is from the Lord. They could not deny that God was moving. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. I always encourage young people who are anticipating being married to read this chapter. I encourage them, if you're going to marry, seek God. Ask for your parents' counsel, if at all possible. Pray. Marry well. Marry well. Don't just marry any old Canaanite. you're going to marry one day, you want to marry someone with a godly heritage. Now, there's no absolute guarantees. I understand that. But your chances of a fulfilling, blessed marriage are going to be far greater. Chapter 24 is a great, great lesson for parents as well as for, for youngsters as they grow up and they aspire to be married, it's a great chapter to study, to meditate upon, and say, Lord, you lead me. You lead me. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm not going to be fretful. You lead me to the person that you have prepared. And in the meantime, you make me into the person that I should be for that person. So they recognize clearly it's God's will. They are willing to release Rebekah. Verse 52, When Abraham's servant heard what they had said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord, and the servant brought out all sorts of gold, silver, jewelry, articles of clothing, gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and her mother. And then he and the men who were with him ate and drank Spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. He's not even there for a day and a half. He's got to go back. But her brother and her mother replied, let the girl remain with us ten days or so, then you may go. Why delay? Why delay? Why delay? on the surface of it it seems reasonable let's let's make make plans let's give our time time for goodbye but he said to them do not detain me now that the lord has granted success to my journey send me on my way so i may go to my master no delay today is the day of salvation you made your decision let's go well but but, but let me go bury my dead. Let me go do some, let me, no, no, no. Today is the day. Let's get on with it. You've made your decision. Let's go. There will be people who will want you to delay. You may be to be to te- de- tempted to delay, to put off, to wait, say, well, it, I, I, I'm not ready. Let's go. Let's go. And then they said, let's call the girl and ask her about it. Let's see what she wants to do. So they call Rebecca and ask her, will you go with this man? What does she say? Let's get out of here. Let's blow this pop stand. Let's move it. Why should I stick around? I love you all, but I got something waiting for me. See, she recognizes how important it is not to delay not to put off any longer. So they went. Her family blessed her. They, she, they say to her, May you may you increase to billions, which she will. Rebecca and her maids got ready, mounted their camels, went back to the man with the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left. Now, Isaac, now we haven't seen Isaac since chapter twenty two, when Abraham sacrificed him on the altar. He's talked about in the passage. Abraham talks about him. The servant talks about him. The family talks about him. Rebecca hears about him. He's nowhere to be seen. It's been years. But now he comes back on the scene. Isaac had come from Beer Lahiroi, for he was living in the Negev. Now, that was where Hagar had found that particular well, if you recall from the earlier chapters. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. Can you imagine, by the way, when, when Rebecca is on her way back on that 500-mile journey with a servant, can you imagine what dominated the conversation? What's he like? Tell me about him. And Isaac is out meditating in the field. What's he thinking about, you think? the great hope and promise of God, which would be embodied in this relationship with this bride who's coming. What's she going to be like? God, don't let her be a hag. (laughs) So he's out there. He looks up. The camels are approaching. Rebecca looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel, asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? What a beautiful picture. It kind of reminds us of the day that we'll see Christ. We've been on this long journey, and he comes to meet us. And we shall know him, and we shall be like him. He is my master, the servant answered. And so she took her veil and covered herself And then the servant told Isaac all that he had done. He told him the whole story, recounted the whole thing. And you had to know that Isaac was going, no kidding. Wow. You know how someone tells you something and how God has worked and you go, wow. They say, you won't believe this. Oh, ye of little faith. servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. She would reside there for a season until they were married. And then he marries her. She became his wife. And I love this part. And he, what? Loved her. What a picture of Christ and the church. And he loved us. How much does he love us? The New Testament says to husbands, love your your wife as Christ has loved the church. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Not only did Sarah's death leave a hole in Abraham's life, it obviously left a hole in Isaac's life, very close to his mother. And now he's comforted after his mother's death. You know, I always tell parents and tell young people that... The one thing that will ensure ensure a strong marriage where a husband will love his wife, is if you raise your kids to love, honor and respect you as parents. If your kids respect you, if they honor you, as Isaac did his own father and mother, chances are those kids will have the necessary equipment to love and honor their spouse. So, so incredibly important. We live in a day and age where so many kids are abandoned. Even even in the church, we have so many families who are broken up, torn apart, for one reason or another, even when the husband and wife are still at home. And the kids do not have training. They don't have input into their life. They don't have godly examples. They're not absorbing the kind of input they need into their life that will equip them for the life that they're to leave live when they're on their own. And so we see this in this particular account. Now, if you look in your notes, I've given you examples of how Isaac is representative of who? Christ. And I have to you that Rebekah is representative of the church. So here's the father, get this, here's the father sending his servant. Now the servant could be representative of the Holy Spirit or even us, because we are servants of God. Here's the father sending his servant to get a bride for his son. Do you see the picture there? So if you look at all of those parallels, they are indeed amazing. And there are more. I wasn't exhaustive in what I gave you. But I want to suggest to you that there is something here more for us in terms of our role in God's plan and God's purpose in the kingdom with respect to the command to make disciples. There is a model here. There are some insights in this passage, chapter 24, For how we, as servants of God, bring people to meet Jesus Christ. Six stages, if you will, of how to evangelize, how to share the gospel. And let me give you these six stages real quickly. Are you interested? Well, whether you're not, I'm going to give them to you anyway. Stage one, we go back to the text, verses 12 through 14. What is it that we see the servant doing? Now remember, picture yourself as a servant of God, sent back into the world, seeking, in effect, a bride for God's Son, Okay, the Father's Son. What's the first thing that the servant does when he he goes? He prays. What's the first thing that you and I should be doing? Praying. Jesus tells his disciples, Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. He says, The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ripe. The workers are few. The first thing we do is pray. We ask God to give us success. The, the servant asks God, Give me success. Open my eyes. Show me who it is that you have chosen. Show me who it is that you have already prepared. Has God prepared people's hearts? Now, we don't just go willy-nilly, just talk to anybody, banging on heads, slamming people with the Bible. Most Christians are immobilized because they do not have have a a strategy for how to share the gospel. And the first thing we do is pray, God, open my eyes, show me. And you've heard me say this to you before again and again and again. He has placed us all in strategic arenas of our life, hasn't he? And there are all sorts of people in all these venues of our life, whether our neighborhood, our relatives, people we work with, we associate with, the kids go to school with, they play soccer with, all these people. Before you go to your soccer match or your soccer practice coach, you say, Lord, who is it that you've you've prepared their hearts? God bless you. I cannot possibly overemphasize the need for prayer. I can't overemphasize the importance of prayer. Before we begin to witness others, we need to first pray for them and ask God for success in recognizing them. Secondly, the second stage, he needs confirmation, doesn't he? He doesn't just jump. He needs confirmation. You and I need confirmation. When we witness to people, again, we just don't go on the street and knock everybody off with the gospel. You have to have a strategy. Part of your strategy is, is as you pray, you, may, you have a conversation with people, you throw out an idea, a thought, maybe you, you do something kind for them, you know, these, these acts of kindness. And then wait for the opportunity. Maybe you, maybe you give them a book. Maybe in in previous conversations you've sensed some kind of openness, and maybe you have a book you'd like to say, you know, I'd I'd like you to read a book and see if there's an openness to it. You all know Moran, right? He's over in Israel right now. And uh, Moran is famous for witnessing to Palestinians and Arabs and so forth. They go to a, a little restaurant up in the valley And he always likes to sit and drink coffee and have a Bible or a book or something on the table that would draw attention. Invariably, someone will say, What is that? He said, Well, sit down, let me tell you. And he's led more people to Christ by just using a little door opener and but he prays, Lord, you bring them, you show me. I'll make myself available. And that young man's life is terrifically, terrifically fruitful that way. So we need confirmation. It's kind of like if you're going to pick fruit, you don't want to pick the fruit while it's hard and unripe necessarily, so you kind of test the fruit. Hmm. We have fruit trees in our yard, and I'll go out in the spring when the fruit is in the summer, when the fruit is ripening, and I'll test it. We have apricot. We have an apricot tree. I finally fed it and it finally produced apricots. <laughs> Duh. Imagine that. We've had it for over 20 years, never produced apricots. One day I said, maybe I should feed it. <laughs> the next year we had more apricots than we knew what to do with. But you go out there and you, you know, you just, I love apricots, so we just test them and wait till they're just right and they just fall off in your hand. It's like that with people. You be a, a fruit checker. <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> now remember, with respect to Rebecca, she comes along, and he hurries down to check, to ask. He asks for a drink of water. He received confirmation in verse 19. Beloved, when we share the gospel, the confirmation often comes when people begin to ask us questions, Will they begin to respond. But at that juncture, Peter says, we must be prepared to give an answer. Now again, another problem, another stumbling block for lots of people who are Christians, is they say, well, I don't know enough. I'm not sure that I know how to answer all the questions. You don't ha- I don't have all the answers to the questions. But you know what? I can say, but well, you know, I can find out that answer. That's a good question. I'll get the answer, I'll get back with you. What a wonderful way to follow up. And that person would be impressed that you would be care enough to go find the answer and follow up with them and get back with them and have more dialogue. We need to have answers. The third phase, preparation. Preparation. He knows she's the woman. He has a pretty good idea that she is the woman, but he is not prepared to talk to her right there. So he's going to look for a time when he can spend more time and explain the whole counsel. She so says, "Can we can we spend some time together later? Is a room at your father's house?" So we need to prepare the person first. Do you remember Zacchaeus? Luke chapter 19, when Jesus comes into, into the city and Zacchaeus wants to see him, lots of crowds. Short guy, he has to climb a tree, look down so he can see Jesus. And Jesus walks along the road, he looks up, sees Zacchaeus up in the tree, and what does he say to Zacchaeus? He says, oh, you rotten sinner, don't you know that you're going to hell? No, he's, he wants to prepare him. So he says, Zacchaeus, come down, I must stay at your house. Just like the servant did with Rebecca. I must stay at your house. And can you imagine the conversation that went on in Zacchaeus' house that night that led to his incredible conversion? So before we can tell somebody about the beauty of God and the wonders of God, the judgment of God, the blessings of God, we have to prepare that person, find a time when we can spend sufficient time with them. And then that would lead us to stage four. That's the presentation. In a Genesis chapter 24, that's between verses 34 and 38. He goes on through, on through verse 49 of that whole passage to explain why he has come, what he has to say. This is the story. We tell them the whole picture. We just don't say, well, God loves you. We tell them the whole story from the beginning. God created us. He created us for a relationship with him. He put Adam and Eve in that garden out of love. He desired relationship. They believed the lie. They rebelled. All of mankind has been in rebellion ever since. God still loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die in our place for us. You tell him the whole council, not just one little part. The tragedy today, and we see this manifested ever so clearly in the Episcopal Church debacle. If you've been reading, you can't help but have not heard about it. The Episcopal Church has become, the hierarchy has become focused on one. Facet of God's nature and one facet alone, that is His love. They've thrown out His holiness, His righteousness, every other aspect of God's, of God's, of God's nature. Disqualify them all. No, nothing else makes sense. It just, it's all about love. They have walked away from a biblical foundation, they have walked away from the scriptures. It's totally subjective now. They've walked away from thousands of years of church tradition and history. And they've walked away from reason itself. That's what's gotten them in that jam. That's a horrible situation to be in. We have a man in our church whose dad is an Episcopal priest in Texas. And he was telling me Friday night that his father got a notice from the Bishop of Texas, who is staunchly conservative in terms of his theological posture that all the churches under his, under his uh, um, uh, service are to take the name Episcopal off their churches, off their letterheads. I mean, there's a huge, huge backlash to this. But all that to say this, is, is you and I, as, as believers, we must, when we talk to people, give them the full counsel. Don't shrink back. They need to know the whole story. And that would lead to the fifth stage, and that is the stage of invitation. Rebecca's parents were ready to let her go. But they decided that she should have the last word. You see, salvation is a very, very personal thing, isn't it? It's my decision. I'm making this, and I want to make it on as much knowledge and understanding as I can make that decision. After all, that is the most important decision any person will ever make in their entire life, isn't it? See, no one else can believe in Christ for you. No matter how strong your faith is, you cannot believe for somebody else. This is why parents, as your kids grow up, you must transmit to them the whole counsel of God. This is why parents teach their kids the scriptures. They teach them the truth. They live the truth before them. So that these kids grow up with a full understanding of what's true and right, so their life can make sense. They make sense of the world and what's going on. And when it comes to time for them to make a decision for Christ, it's their decision. They're not hitchhiking on your faith anymore. They understand. of course, you've been praying for them. So in verse 58 of chapter 24, we have the invitation and we have the acceptance. Always give the person you you talk to, give them the opportunity to respond. Paul did this in Acts chapter 26 when he preached to King Agrippa. He said, King Agrippa, what are you going to do about this, what I've told you? So we tell people, what are you going to do about Jesus? When I share with somebody and I'm in the process of trying to lead somebody into the Lord and I explain everything to them, I say, do you understand exactly what I told you? Does this make sense to you? Yes, it does. I say, all right, now, is there any earthly reason? Is there any earthly reason why you wouldn't want to receive Jesus as your Savior right now? You wouldn't want to commit to him. Now, what's the logical response to that? There is no earthly reason. Sometimes people do a little, little, dis- right? But, 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 I'm not ready. Why? What's holding you back? This is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. What possibly could be holding you back? Now, I already know. It's probably a moral issue, isn't it? I don't want to give up something. Today's the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. We must present the invitation as clearly as possible to them. And then the last stage, stage six, we see reflected back in our passage. Even after we've witnessed, even after we've received them, even after after they've made a decision, we still have work to do, and that is the work of incorporation. They must be incorporated into the family. The servant said to her, will you? She said, yes. He brings her back, and he, ad- he introduces her to Isaac. He incorporates her into the family, and she becomes married to Isaac. We need to bring these folks into the company of believers. Very simple. When you bring someone to Christ, you don't just leave them there. They don't know what to do next. You say, okay, now next, here's what we do. You don't say, now go to church. You say, I'll pick you up, I'll bring you to church. Well, but, but, no, no, I'm going to bring you to church. I want to introduce you, I want to help you become involved. This is very, very important. Don't just tell them to go to church. Bring them to church. Then you bring them to your mini church. Then you sign them up for a class along with you. You see, you incorporate them. They don't know what to do. There's people in church who are just lost. Cl- they don't know what to do. What's, what's my next step? This is the whole pro- process of disciples, make disciples. The dilemma for many Christians is they don't, know, they don't make disciples because they're not sure they know what to do to make How does one make a disciple? They think they've got to be like the pastor and have all the answers, which he doesn't have. And I tell people, no, 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 no. You just tell them to do what you do, presuming what you do is the right thing to do. Right? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So you don't leave them to their own ends. You just say, come on, I'm going to bring you, I'm going to show you, I'm going to introduce you, I'll show you what the next step is, the next step. They may go, well, I'm not sure. Just come on. You be gently, lovingly insistent. Let me say that again. You be gently, lovingly insistent. Incorporate them. Years ago, I led a man to Christ, and he was coming to church. He's been in church for a month. And I recruited him to work in our children's church. He said, I don't know anything. I'm brand new. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Two year olds, right? I said, You've been in church for four weeks. Tell me three things you've learned in the past four weeks. He recited three things to me he'd learned in the last four weeks. And I said, You know more than those two year olds know. (laughs) You'll do fine. God is at work, beloved. He is at work. We have the historical account of Abraham ensuring that from the human end, the promises will be fulfilled, confident that God is going to work it out. But also to us, this this account is a metaphor, if you will, for us in terms of reaching out into the world bringing people into know Jesus Christ, incorporating them into the family of God. What a beautiful picture it is when you see somebody who you know who was lost comes to know Jesus, and you see them in that one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ, and you see them growing, you see them flourishing. There is nothing greater, I promise you. Amen? Amen? Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for, Lord, saving me Thank you for the hope of glory. Thank you that I have confidence that you are at work and your purposes will be fulfilled. We love you this morning, Lord. I pray if there be anybody here who doesn't know you. God, that you would have spoken to their hearts and give them a desire, a hunger to know you. That indeed, that they would respond to an invitation. That they come with a friend or a relative. Lord, that that friend or relative would fill in some gaps, fill in some blanks, invite them to come to a saving knowledge of you. Father, we commend all these things to you. We love you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.